Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, Harris. It's so great to have you on the show. I'm really, really excited to chat with you about Lifelines. It's a project that I've been following uh, for very selfish reasons <laughs> very closely over the past few years. So it's like really awesome to hold its physical form in my hands and talk to you about it. So welcome to New Books Network. Thanks, Neha. It's so wonderful to be here. And absolutely, I feel like we've been in conversation for all of these years and it's it's really fun to um, to be able to do this now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Let's get started with getting to know you a little better. So I would love for you to tell us a little bit about how you became an anthropologist and in particular, a medical anthropologist. Sure. So um, I somehow got through college without really understanding what anthropology was. I had studied, (laughs) even though I had taken a linguistic anthropology class, I studied linguistics um, and was also um, intending to go to medical school. So I had done a lot of um, bench science work uh, as well and um, eventually kind of got diverted to public health um, via some very wise friends who gave me some good counsel. And it was in my first year of public health school um, where I took uh, a class on um, gender, sexuality, and reproductive health that was taught by a medical anthropologist. And the syllabus was completely unlike the rest of my first year of public health school courses, which were really interesting, but it was those that was lots of epidemiology and biostatistics and policy. And, and this class was a book a week ethnography. And that was the syllabus. And I had never really um, quite understood what ethnography was as a genre, what medical anthropology was as a subfield, what anthropology was as a field. And I was absolutely fascinated by it. Um, I was fascinated by the research method. I was fascinated by the kind of scope. Um, I was fascinated by the ways that questions about medicine and healthcare could be opened up by this research method and scope. And I was especially fascinated by the book as a genre of writing. Um, the eth- the ethnographic book, the monograph, or you know, the, the now the duograph or the collaborative book or whatever, but the book, the thing that you could hold in your hand. And so I thought to myself, I, I want to do this. And I didn't know when, um, but I thought 
I want to do this. And so I worked in public health after finishing that academic program. I worked in policy for several years. And I found myself, anytime I got some sort of policy assignment, I found myself kind of turning to medical anthropologists who had written about that particular topic or that particular place in the world um, as, a, as a resource, even though I was in kind of the, the world of Washington, D.C., HIV and reproductive health advocacy. And I eventually decided that um, I didn't want to spend my life and career working on other people's research, as fun as that was, that I wanted to do my own. And also that I wanted to write a book. Uh, and somehow in my head, I mapped book onto medical anthropology. And that that was sort of my my journey into it. That's, that's um, very fascinating. And I love how candid you are about uh, your journey here. And, you know, I think both your books are um, you can tell that you really set out to write a book book, you know, like they have that kind of uh, uh, narrative form and structure and uh, the care with which you write uh, clearly shows. So I want to know more about how you started what, uh, working on this particular book and this particular project. What's the story behind this book? So the story behind this book is like a lot of second books often picks up where the first one leaves off or is spurred by earlier moments sometimes. I mean, for some people, that's the case. For me, it was sort of like that, a little bit sideways. So there's a person in the first book who I, I call Mary, who was um, sort of my closest informant, collaborator, interlocutor um, in thinking about diabetes, obesity, diseases. She was a person in the neighborhood that I lived in in Mumbai who really, um, helped me understand kind of what was at stake at the level of the household for questions about food and disease. And um, I had for a very long time during dissertation work and then afterwards, and then, you know, even after this first book was finished, continued to stay whenever I was in Mumbai in the same neighborhood. And very sadly, uh, her brother was killed in a really terrible car crash. And um, hearing her kind of experience that and um, watching the family go through what had happened in its aftermath and then talking to her about it and then talking to other people in the neighborhood about it, it kind of came sort of into relief for me, the ways in which automobile accidents were uh, just an increasingly or maybe always an everyday feature of of life in Mumbai for, for many people. But it wasn't just automobile accidents. It was people on scooters or people on motorcycles. And then, of course, the trains, which were such an ever-present feature and are such an ever-present feature of mobility in the city. So these the ways in which um, a traffic accident could reshape a world became very visible to me in this moment. At the same time, some of the public health researchers who I've been in conversation with ever since I began working in India were increasingly turning their attention to questions about traumatic injury and were attempting and are attempting in many ways to build out the kind of quantitative 
apparatus that's necessary to have a trauma registry for India. Um, and that's a really complicated one, as you know, I'm sure, as someone who works a lot with automobile or transit statistics, you kind of have to have medical data speak to highway data. And, and so this is a group of, of physicians and public health researchers who are attempting to kind of build out what it would take to understand the statistics behind traumatic injuries from traffic accidents. And so I thought, you know, what would an ethnographic project look like that tracked this from the sort of methods that I'm trained in, and what would that then be? And it started out as a project about ambulances, which then wound up being the first chapter of the book. And I thought that, okay, this project is going to be an ethnography of ambulance services, both public and private, and I'll run around the city and be in the ambulance, et cetera, and see how that worked. And, you know, I, I knew from the beginning that I didn't really want to ride in an ambulance when there was actually a case going on, because I felt that that would be in the way. Um, and it also seemed to be the case that... Um, Ambulances were doing a different kind of work than I had been initially led to believe. And the more I sort of investigated it, the more it seemed like their real tether point was to the hospital. And so that's really what turned my attention to hospitals as sort of the destination point for uh, trauma cases. And that's kind of how the, the project took shape. Um, of course, the longer I spent in hospitals, the more I began to question movement into, through, and out of the hospital. And that's kind of what generated the book as it is now, which is sort of a story of trauma en route to the hospital, through the hospital, and out of the hospital through different vectors. Mm -hmm. That's really so beautifully put, and thank you for offering that um, comprehensive sort of overview of what the book does. That's really helpful in anchoring our conversation as we move forward. But before we get into the meat of the book, what struck me was that you write so beautifully and reflexively about doing an ethnography of trauma. And the you bring up these really difficult dilemmas around fieldwork and, um, you know, questions about writing that this ethnography of trauma posed for you. Um, I thought the way you wrote through your own body in some of the chapters was very, very profound. And if I may say so, moving. Um, I would love for you to speak a little bit about your research methods, how the topic of your book shaped the way you conceptualize the field and field work. And what is it, um, what, do, what do you mean when you say uh, the research ethic of measured reframe sort of, you know, shaped uh, your research ethics. I, I thought that was a very fascinating phrase, and I would love for you to unpack that uh, for our listeners. Sure. Um, thank you for that question. I mean, maybe a couple of things following on from your previous question. I mean, I've, I've always had a, um, I mean, I, I, I always talk to my students about kind of the specificity of the science that they might be interested in. You know, different book, different projects compel an engagement with different kinds of sciences. And so for me, this project was um, a, a kind of a, a fascination with emergency medicine as a science. And... Um, surgery in within it. And the thing about emergency medicine that's really strange and fascinating to me is, it, is that in theory, it has no organ as or, or bodily system as its object. 
So cardiologists study the heart, nephrologists study kidneys. I mean, they all, they do much more than that, of course. They're systemic. I don't want to sort of give the impression that, you know, you, you're a particular type of clinical specialist and you study one organ, but that's not it. But it, there is an area of focus. But emergency medicine doesn't do that. Emergency medicine takes the emergency as its object in a lot of ways. So that's part one. And part two is that the context really matters for thinking about research methods, which I'll get to in a minute. And the context of this particular project is um, that I was going to be anchoring in a public hospital, a government hospital in urban India, a very busy government hospital in the center of the city, which serves predominantly the city's poorest population because the cost of care is is comparatively low to free, although free is kind of complicated. You know, sometimes it requires reimbursement. Sometimes there are things which government services don't cover. But compared to the, the private hospitals in the city, which are um, exorbitant in their expenses. Um, public health care is a different matter. So I was, the context for the research methods, importantly, is emergency medicine or trauma medicine as a subset of it in the context of public health care. So then the question for me was, well, what kind of research methods attend to those specificities? And what counts as the field in emergency medicine? Is it just the ER? Or what counts as the field when you're trying to think about the relationships between public and private medicine? So that that's where I started. Um, methodologically, I was interested in thinking about the different people who tell the story of those two domains of emergency medicine and of the tensions between public and private care. And I'm, of course, not the first person, not the first medical anthropologist, not the first ethnographer to think about the plurality of stories. Um, however, I, I did find that in medical anthropology, there can sometimes be a tendency when one is in a hospital to turn towards doctors as one's default uh, as the storyteller or the patient as one's storyteller. And this was not always a project that made doctors or patients amenable for storytelling. So that opened up the question of who else is in the room, nurses orderlies, housekeepers, family members, me, um, many technicians. So that was something that constituted the field for me as well, was sort of a plurality of labor positions within the kind of complex uh, ecology of a hospital ward. There's this other question that goes towards this research ethic of measured refrain, which for me was... um, when one is dealing with life and death moments, which this really is, I mean, I, a trauma is a trauma ward treats trauma surgically defined as a blunt or penetrating wound that is immediately life threatening. So you can have a bad cut and be bleeding, and you will not probably wind up in this trauma ward. Um, you will probably be shunted somewhere else in the hospital. This is a ward for people who, by definition, are on. The border between life and death. And so what does it mean to do ethnography in this space? For me, that was also often a question of what it means to observe and infer from observations, and that interview wasn't always the method that I could 
turn to in the ways that I might be able to in other spaces. I've always been more of a kind of a participant observer or an observer than I have been an interviewer in a lot of ways. And I've always felt that kind of sidebar conversations are sometimes the best form of interview. So that's part of it. The other part of the research ethic of measured refrain is letting things go and just be. Um, and thinking about the aftermath of events as much as events that are unfolding in the moment. Um, because I really wanted to think about what I would maybe call a constellational methodology for ethnography, how even though something is happening to a patient in a given, or a, a person who is a patient, and that's really important to me, that it's a person who becomes a patient, that even though something is happening to them, there are 16 other connections to other people and problems in the ward. In a hospital ward like this, a patient is never alone. There is all kinds of, as I said, clinical labor being applied to them by other workers. There are their family members sometimes, although an entire chapter of the book is dedicated to patients whose family members can't be identified. But it's also the case that each patient in the ward is in a relationship to other patients in the ward, whether explicitly or implicitly because of logics of triage, but also because sometimes I would see patients when they were sort of in recovery talking to each other. So there's all kinds of ways that relationality is happening in there. And in this space, complex relationality demands kind of a complex ethnographic method. And of course, one human, one ethnographer cannot attend to all of these things. So then to me, the question was, well, what would it look like if one began from the position of a refrained methodology and um, opening up to what people sort of um, highlighted for me as most at stake, um, rather than this sort of superhero version of ethnography where one is supposed to track all of the things all at once, which is, in my view, impossible. So that is how I got to movement, um, because it seemed to me that movement was the most um, pressing issue at stake for everyone in this space. And that then made movement my ethnographic object. And that then sort of generated these questions of measured refrain, because one has to kind of watch movement bear out in order to understand it. Thank you. That was very provocative. And, um, you know, there's a lot of things to think about here. And um, I think your book provides a fabulous example of um, opening up many more questions around uh, ethnographic methodology and like how we approach our interlocutors. So thank you for that. Um, in this deeply insightful book, you advance an argument about how traffic can constitute a social field, an embodied process, and a clinical infrastructure beyond the accident scene. Um, in, your, in your own words, um, you say, bodies may appear to leave traffic, but traffic does not necessarily leave bodies. Um, could you elaborate a bit about this central argument of the book? What is this argument speaking against, or um, what genealogy of theory is it building on? Yeah, so it is a book about traffic, um, and it's a book about the ways that traffic might be um, it already is a powerful analytic in anthropology and other forms of critical theory, um, but I'm interested in it as an embodied analytic. Um, and I'm particularly interested in traffic um, because it, it it can highlight 
the kind of the problems and possibilities of continuity. So throughout the book, um, and in the introduction in particular, I, I'm trying to kind of think through what it means to have a kinetic theory of bodies or a kinetic, I forget theory, a kinetic account of bodies moving from what I call the body static to the body kinetic. So, and what I mean by continuous property of, of bodies or of anything else is to not be able to feel satisfied in naming um, a body with one sort of uh, adjectival descriptor, like this body is you know, happy, or this body is lifeless, or to, to actually ask the question of, well, wh what happens if there's more to it than kind of an event <laughs> that has concluded? And the thing about traffic, automobile traffic in Mumbai, which anybody who has been in any kind of city in, in anywhere in the world knows, the thing about traffic is that it's not ever complete gridlock, and it's or it can feel like complete gridlock, but it does eventually move because the, the crazy thing about traffic is it can feel like you're stuck, but eventually you do get to work or home. And so it has this property of being almost fluid uh, where it is both stuckedness and flow sometimes alternating, sometimes not, sometimes simultaneous. You can kind of be gliding along with your foot on the brake and that property was really interesting to me as a social property of what it meant to think about continuity, not in a not necessarily normative way, like stop is bad and continuous is good, and, um, but what it meant to have an intermediary analytic between complete stoppage and complete flow. And I was interested in that for purposes of developing social theory, but I was particularly interested in that in developing two other kind of strands of thought. One of them was about medicine, which is to say, how could we think about medicine as a, a form of traffic, one in which um, we are moved, but often haltingly so, one in which we are frequently stopped and refigured and then put on some other sort of speed pathway again, only to hit another roadblock. Because that is how people often encounter medicine, not as a one-off encounter, but as kind of a series of continuities. Anyone who has tried to get a referral from a physician for another kind of physician, I mean, referral is one of a million examples of the ways in which healthcare actually is a, a traffic property. But more broadly, I'm interested in traffic as an ethnographic property, which is to say, beyond the case study of India, beyond the case study of medicine, beyond the case study of public health, what happens when we think about the social world and our ability to describe it in terms that, again, are neither pure stoppage or pure flow, but somewhere in between? So that's kind of the central argument of the book, to think about the ways that bodies can leave the scene of a traffic accident, that you get hit by a car and your body goes flying and hits the road tragically. But then there's all of this stuff that happens to your body afterwards if you survive. You're moved by people into a stretcher. You're moved into an ambulance. You're moved through the hospital. Even if you die, you're moved into forensics. And you're moved towards some sort of, sort of um, post-mortem rituals. And so 
in that case, an account of the body that's purely static actually doesn't really describe what happens after the accident scene. Um, and so that kind of insistence on continuity, again, not as a normative good, but as a descriptive necessity was really important to me. In terms of what I was speaking against or with, or the genealogy of theory that I was building on, a couple of things. One, I alluded to it a little bit before. I, I really wanted to kind of um, bring an, ethn an ethnographer's eye or contribution or perspective to the work that my public health colleagues in India were doing um, in building these quantitatively oriented databases of, of trauma, they felt very strongly that ethnographic accounts would be key. Um, and I was really lucky to have public health scholars from Mumbai and from around India, you know, name ethnography as important. So I wanted to kind of be able to tell stories that bore out what they were tracking quantitatively. And maybe bore out a story that was different, actually, and it was those tensions that were important. In terms of theory, I mean, a couple of things. One, this is a story that you're quite familiar with. There's an enormous and important literature on infrastructure in urban studies, and particularly in South Asia, that I was interested in engaging. And, and that literature by and large um, has, for very understandable reasons, not really thought so much about hospitals as an infrastructure. So infrastructure tends to mean something else. And so to me, I thought, well, what would this conversation look like if medicine was an infrastructure? Would it look different than transit or public utilities, electricity, water, et cetera, gas? Um, that's one. Um, in terms of medical anthropology, I kind of gestured to it a little bit, um, having the subdiscipline orient towards movement rather than static properties was something of interest to me. And here I'm building on, I mean, I couldn't even begin to name the long list of colleagues and, and, and people who've thought about organ transplants, disability um, the movement of, of cellular materials, um, the globalization of pharmaceuticals and clinical trials. I mean, there's all of this stuff in medical anthropology about movement. It's not always named as movement or mobility, but it is there very much. So I was interested in kind of having a conversation with that field. And then maybe at the most conceptual, I was really um, and am still um, deeply, deeply influenced by the work of Lauren Berlant, um, who to me really challenged me to think about how people build social infrastructures in moments of crisis. And I think kind of offers theories of everyday life that alongside works by um, someone like Walter Benjamin were very influential over my thinking of what it meant to have an in-situ analytic of um, kind of transition as one's orientation towards social theory. And that had a real profound effect on why, how and why I kind of landed on traffic as sort of a key concept. Because it, it for me, in keeping with the kind of the political theory of 
Berlant was a way to think about the current politics of public-private healthcare in India in terms that mattered to people who were really stuck <laughs> and also moving through it in very, very um, embodied terms. Yeah, thank you. That was very uh, helpful in, in understanding the kind of stakes of the book. So that was that was really great. Um, the chapters in the book are organized around the different practices that trace how tra trauma moves from the site of the accident up through dissection and even recovery. In each chapter, you theorize and think through a particular lifeline from the act of carrying uh, being a lifeline of transfer to the act of tracing being a lifeline of identification. I thought it was very interesting how every chapter revealed the connections between bodies and movement on several registers and how the social relations, institutions, and the city itself uh, come to bear upon the very possibility of movement and mobility. Uh, for instance, in the first chapter, Carrying Lifelines of Transfer, you show how the ambulance is not just conveying the injured, but that it conveys and is embedded in social inequality in the laboring lives of Hamals like Lalit and of ambulance drivers. Could you speak a little bit about how the social and the logistical and the infrastructural enable and hinder the crucial act of carrying a, a body that has uh, an injured body from the site of trauma? Sure. Yeah, I mean, this question is so interesting and it's it's it keeps echoing your earlier questions about method and research ethics and also theory. I mean, uh, very early on in the project, I realized that... Um, when I see someone come into the trauma ward or when anyone sees anyone coming into an emergency room, you're not seeing the original thing that might be called the capital E event. And that was really, I mean, it's both incredibly obvious, but also really vexing because I think that often we think that we're observing the social dimensions of the event that we're asking about, but there's this time delay between the actual collision or someone falling out of a train or being pushed out of a train or whatever happens on a train or on the road or on a motorcycle, which skids on a pothole and tumbles someone over and the time they get to the hospital. And that time is so crucial, by the way, which is what I talk a little bit about later on in the book. But in that interval, so much happens. So what happens? Well, a person is carried from the accident scene to the hospital via different kinds of social and material infrastructures. Um, I think this is where my original focus on ambulances really started to dissolve. And this is why it's a chapter in the book and not a whole book. Because it was incredibly evident to me that the ambulances were not the first contact point with the injured body, but rather there were all of these workers at railway stations who in Mumbai are called hamals, and they're often um, luggage carriers, but they occupy because of casted and other forms of labor, really complex positions in the ecology of a railway station in Mumbai. It is different in other cities in India. I've, I've learned from talking to colleagues elsewhere in India, but it, in Mumbai, often it is, um, you know, I tell the story of Lalit, who's one of these um, hamals who um, is 
he does all kinds of things actually he's um he's a mochi so he's a cobbler um in in the station which itself is a casted form of labor um but then when there's an accident he's sort of called for by the um the railway uh police and he is the person who is tasked with kind of lugging a body from the tracks into a van or increasingly into an ambulance so here it's not the ambulance workers who make the first contact it's actually the late kind of the the railway station laborer so that to me immediately blew open and maybe this is your earlier question about you know kind of building on theory and building on speaking against our our arguments that totally blew open the kind of the conceit about automobility that dominates the mobilities literature in urban studies and elsewhere. Um, there is so much to be gleaned from that literature about the pleasures of driving, etc. But I mean, this sort of sense of the sovereign subject who mobilizes themselves just does not hold when it is someone else who is lugging your body. And so I was really interested in thinking about injury in terms of a person carrying someone else, what it meant to be carried rather than what it meant to move. And that conceptual distinction, it's an analytical distinction between moving and being carried was for me what was most at stake in terms of how the, to your question, how the social and logistical um, enable mobility. So if you begin from the proposition that it's not necessarily a person whose sovereign movement is dictating the story, then you can ask really interesting questions. Who is carrying them? Well, that's a complicated question that has as much to do with caste as it does with medical expertise. Who enables that movement and how? Well, that's kind of also a really interesting question because it has as much to do with the ways that ambulance drivers think about the different public hospitals in Mumbai in terms of their reputations, in terms of their kind of perceived speed of processing patients as it does the actual clinical uh, context of the injured person. So for me, eventually, logistics was as much kind of um, a part of the carrier's everyday knowledge about the city, uh, which stations are most busy, which stations are most injurious, how you take shortcuts between roads and highways, and um, uh, what off-ramps are the best ones to kind of park under, and it, all of these ways of knowing the city that enter into the picture before the person becomes a patient. And that was, um, for me, what was kind of a way in which the social of medicine was um, urban from the get-go. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And following this, you delve into another uh, move, a movement practice, I guess, which is uh, the practice of shifting. And you trace the lifelines of uh, triage that engender the movement of shifting a patient from one place to another. Um, could you speak about what paying attention to shifting as a verb, as a practice, and as a concept uh, does to understandings uh, around healthcare access? Sure. Um you know, shifting, which is in the context of the book is, um, I take it up in the second chapter, which is about what happens when um, someone does arrive to the hospital, but before they come to the trauma ward, they are triaged in the casualty ward. So that chapter is really about kind of arrival and triage. And 
um, again, it may be back to the, the, the point of um, sidebar conversations and words that appear often rather than interviews, shift karo, which is the kind of the imperative Hindi and it's also used in Marathi to um, implore someone to shift up a patient or a thing or to move something. So this is an English word borrowed into Hindi, um, just kept coming up again and again and again. And so to me, I was really interested in thinking about what shifting was as a gesture of medicine. Um, triage in emergency medicine, and here I'm building on the work of um, Vin Khin Nguyen, who had written really compellingly about um, triage as a kind of a politics of uh, medicine um, in West Africa um, in the context of HIV. Um, it's often thought of as kind of a politics of importance. And, you know, even within emergency medicine, forgetting anthropology, triage is like, you know, how do you or how do you take this really complicated situation of multiple bodies and different kinds of resources and um, put in an order of importance who gets attended to in what order and with what resources? How do you kind of order the chaos? Um, and so I thought, wow, you know, triage is not just about knowing, it's, it's a lot about moving. And so shifting was what I thought triage was in practice. It was a question of who and what must be moved and under what conditions. And if that's your object, if, if the movement of triage is your object here, shifting, then origin and destination are important, but they're not the only thing that's important. Shifting was kind of like this intermediary power formation, maybe like the meantime that everyone is in. Um, and it does something for understandings of healthcare access to your question. I think that both intersect with, but also perhaps differ from conversations um, about state power and bureaucracy, both within and outside of South Asian studies, that really affirm kind of stuckness. Um, this would be, for example, um, all of the work that Akhil Gupta has done on um, the kind of the questions of red tape and the ways that bureaucracy is itself a form of structural violence. So I wanted to think with that conversation, but to ask how is movement how how can movement also be a form of that um, where uh, you see the same power formations, but it's not necessarily pure stuckedness that people are facing? I mean, waiting is so indicative of what people in hospitals do. Um, and yet, at the same time, just like traffic, waiting does eventually stop and you do eventually see someone for care and so to me as an ethnographer i wanted to really think with that time space of of waiting which was again could feel like pure stuckedness but it was also being in transition i mean if i sort of i would spend time with patients and their families who were waiting in the casualty ward and it was Never the case that they were just sort of stuck in a corner and never to be attended to. There actually was kind of constant 
I don't know if I would call it check-ins, but there were these constant kind of interruptions of checking on a person's uh, vital signs or the family members advocating for their their loved one and saying, asking the nurse, what about my, you know, what about my son? When is he going to see a doctor? So there were all of these shifts um, that were happening kind of in the time space of the ward that I felt needed description and kind of a, a pure blockage waiting, um, uh, we're never going to move, analytic didn't quite do it, but neither did a flow analytic because obviously people were uh, waiting as well. So I needed some sort of sense of kind of an intermediary power formation and shifting did that in a, in a lot of interesting ways once I began to hear it um, as being kind of the, the, I don't know, the kind of vocabulary of the casualty ward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And speaking of the casualty ward, I absolutely loved your chapter on visitations and how lifelines of the home fulfill trouble and exceed the demands of trauma care in the hospital. The way you explored the kinetic care labor of kin in trauma wards was really striking and revealed the tensions and frictions uh, surrounding the seemingly straightforward act of visitation. Um, you say that the ward allows certain impressions and practices of some domesticities, but disallows others. And I thought that was a very interesting argument to put forth. Um, can you share with our listeners what was allowed and disallowed in terms of these domesticities and how factors like fictive kinship and caste manifest in these difficult intimacies in the ward? Sure. Um, so this chapter uh, is about family and, and visitation I wanted to take seriously all of the ways in which family members are part of the care for traumatic injury. Um, But because it is a hospital ward where patients are in critical condition, um, family members aren't always allowed in. There are specific visiting hours. Um, There are concerns about secondary infection for patients who are on ventilators, so you need to restrict the number of breathers in the room. Um, There are all kinds of things that happen to patients, both kind of before, during, and after surgery, where the presence of family members may be deemed to help and it may be deemed a hindrance in terms of the kinds of medical interventions that are done on them. Um, And so for me, thinking about what family is when it is at a hospital and what family does when family is at a hospital had to begin, if I was going to take seriously this movement-oriented analysis, the sort of restricted and enabled movements that family members were afforded in this space. Because in other wards of, of this hospital, Um, it is the case in terms of kind of like the labor structure that you may have something like 50 patients in an open general ward with two nurses and several resident doctors and tons of family members who are, you know, they're not always allowed in, but um, it's a kind of a more open space and the hospital's visiting hours are a little bit, I wouldn't say they're more flexible, but they're kind of continuous. But I'm working in a, in a hospital ward that is very much run like an intensive care unit because it is, it has a surgical unit and an intensive care unit inside it. It's closed. It doesn't have open windows to the outside. It's a very high acute 
acuity, intensity, space. And so there's much greater restrictions on visitation. And there's also a much higher nurse to patient ratio. So there are far more nurses per patient because of the acuity of the needs of the patient. So that's kind of an important context to understand that family members in this ward, the politics of domesticity in this ward from the get-go are a little bit different than the politics of domesticity in a kind of a different kind of hospital ward. Um, so the intensity of care is already different. Um, in terms of what's allowed and disallowed, even though there is a high level of nursing and doctor uh, labor and also technician labor and housekeeper labor um, around the ward going on because there are only, you know, at, at one time, something like 16 patients um, as opposed to something like 50 or 80, which is a really diff huge difference. Um, nonetheless, family members are quite needed in a lot of ways for everyday forms of care labor because these, again, patients are really high acuity. The injuries are incredibly severe. Um, they require all kinds of complex machinations and technologies. It's often the case that the patients in this ward, when we say traffic accident or traumatic injury, it can sound like a generic thing. But often what that means technically is, is what's called polytrauma. So someone can have a brain injury and a chest injury and a traumatic limb injury, maybe requiring amputation. So that means there's neuro that's required, there's ortho that's required, there's there's 16 different medical specialties. So this is a really complicated medical unit in terms of labor. So that means that things like, um, you know, uh, dabbing someone's forehead <laughs> when they're sweating or helping to turn patients' bodies over to prevent bed sores, which is something that nurses do regularly, but sometimes they, their labor gets really stretched. So sometimes family members will be called in to do that. Um, just kind of accompaniment is a labor that family members are often asked to do. Um, the presence of family isn't always assumed to make a patient calmer, but patients, if they're awake and conscious, may ask for family members. And that's something that, you know, the ward, when it will allow family, will allow them to do. At the same time, I gestured to a little bit before, there is a sense that too many people in the room overwhelms patients and overwhelms the ward. And so there's a sort of precarious balance between the assumption that family members are a salve or also a source of classed care labor that is a supplement to what is the gendered classed care labor of nursing um, on one hand, and also the sense that family members can be too agitated and themselves present something else for the medical staff to have to deal with that they don't have the bandwidth to deal with. The broader kind of context, and it's a little bit of a slippery one, but I do write about it, is that this is a public hospital. And it is the case that very often um, families can become very upset with what they perceive to be um, a quality of care that is not what they expected. 
a clinical outcome that is not what they expected. And so tensions can really arise between family members and um, clinical care providers. And that definitely happens. And so there's also sort of a tacit sense that agitation among family members is sort of a net bad for everyone in the room patients and providers both. So there's this weird kind of gatekeeping that happens where families are needed, but their necessity has to be modulated. Um, and from the, I thought that was a really interesting way to think about visitation because we think about visitation as like things that families do, but I wanted to think about it as things that kind of a movement politics that families are wrapped into on one hand. On the other hand, I was also really interested in thinking about the workers of the ward who stay there for a very long time and for the kind of the nursing staff and the, and the um, not the physicians who may be there, the junior physicians who may be there on short rotations. The faculty are there for a very long time. The nurses are there, can be there for a career. And the orderlies and the what are called the servant staff, um, problematically, but that is the term that's used, um, cleaners, technicians, they may be there for decades. And so I was also interested in the ways that the ward visits its workers to think about kind of the relationship between domesticity and labor when domesticity isn't necessarily something that only families have, but it's also something that the workers in the ward have. What does it mean to be in a place for so long that is filled with such challenging cases and in fact, quite a lot of death and um, have that visit you. So again, to think of visitation as something that moves families um, and also moves workers both. Um, and, and that opens up to me questions of kinship because kinship then isn't just what um, a patient's family member has to the patient. It also opens up things like the relationships that we could call fictive kin between a patient and a housekeeper. Um, you know, the doctors and nurses are, more the doctors are kind of moving constantly between the beds. But at night, especially, there's all of these intimacies that happen between patients and other staff members. Um, it was unsurprising, but important to me that nurses knew all kinds of backstories of a patient's story that would never appear in the record, that may never be voiced to a doctor, or in the same way that a cleaner, a housekeeper, you know, a sweeper would speak to patients and know about their life stories in ways that a clinical provider never would. So there are things that are speakable in a hospital ward that may not be speakable to family members, um, that may not be speakable to clinical providers, but are speakable to others who are in the ward, be they other patients or other kinds of workers. And so that's another form of relationality, and one may call it kin-making, I'm not sure, but it's definitely a form of relationality that I wanted to think through in terms of visitation. You know, what does it mean that, a, that a, for example, a housekeeper visits a patient's bed? Um, as opposed to only a family member visiting a patient. 
um, that, that that opens up different kinds of questions of what trauma is and what it means and for whom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, I just have to reiterate that it was such a beautifully written and uh, it was, I think it was my favorite chapter in the book. <laughs> As you were speaking about it, I was drawn into <laughs> the, the life in the world again. Yeah, I thought it raised very interesting and important points that I'd never quite considered. Um, and yeah, it was very eye-opening for me. Um, but there's another chapter that I was very taken by, and it's the chapter on dissection, where you decenter the corpse as a static form and focus on what you call the lifelines of forensics. In doing so, you show how the question of why a death is caused lies in part in differences in movement. I would love for you to tell us about the postmortem process and how it's a bottleneck and a black box. Um, it was also very interesting to learn about the ways in which doctors understood their own work in a branch of medicine that is highly stigmatized. So how do all these issues kind of come to bear in the practice of dissection? Yeah, thank you for asking that. I mean, th- this is a, this is a, this was in some ways one of, when the chapters were all very hard to write, um, this was a very difficult one to try to th- to think through, um, both narratively and conceptually. So it's the chapter about what happens to patients if they die in the trauma ward, which happens a lot. It doesn't happen all the time, but this is a very high mortality clinical phenomenon. Um, Surviving trauma, despite the best efforts of the hospital, um, because of the intensity of injuries, uh, can be quite hard won. It's also the case that because of the delays in care that happen um, in getting the patient to the hospital in the first place. It doesn't matter which hospital they would go to. Um, There's just a point at which sometimes the body cannot be resuscitated. Um, So I wanted to understand more what death was in this context, what it meant, and for whom in different ways. And the postmortem was a really key feature of that that sort of desire to understand or that problem of understanding. Um, For listeners, the the important context or sort of fact is that in this setting in particular, there are two types of postmortems that happen. One is... I mean, to call it a regular postmortem makes it sound not important. It's, it's a very important thing. I'm kind of a, a, a medical postmortem, a clinical postmortem. Happens um, when, uh, I mean, the things that one does a postmortem or an autopsy are needed to know, right? They're, it's necessary to understand. Um, you bring in pathologists to understand the cause of death. Um, that is a medical postmortem and is handled. It could be from, you know, myocardial infarction, a heart attack. It could be, it could be from all kinds of different things. And it's handled by a, a very particular division of the medical faculty in the hospital who are trained, who are trained pathologists to do a postmortem. However, if someone dies from a train accident or an automobile accident, or something that is thought to be a suspicious death, such as suspected suicide, or something like severe burns that could be thought to be a death that was 
not incidental or accidental. That death is looked at by a different group of physicians, overlapping but also different, who are charged with handling what's called medical legal postmortems. So in this setting, any accident, when I say accident, any traffic accident, automobile or train accident, or a fall, is automatically considered a medical legal case, which means it has to have a police investigation, which in India would start with a first information report or the FIR, alongside a clinical report. And that's different than if someone dies in the hospital from a heart attack. I mean, then which does happen, right? Unexpected deaths happen within the hospital and then do need an autopsy. But an FIR isn't filed for that purpose. In these cases, because they're traffic accidents, it is. And so the postmortem is actually technically under the supervision of kind of both the the hospital, but also the police, even though the police aren't the ones there in the room doing the autopsy. But it's a very specific event space that is deeply monitored, um, highly regulated, and at the same time, completely marginalized by the rest of the hospital. So the reason I say it's a black box is because of a couple of reasons. One, first and foremost, this is for me what was most at stake in capturing, was that for family members, um, in the case of something like, say, a heart attack, um, a family member, families have the ability to um, opt for or, you know, call for a postmortem or not. But in the case of a medical legal case, like an accident, there is no choice. The state mandates that a medical legal must uh, postmortem must be done. So your loved one has been through this horrible event. If you are so, you know, if you get to even see them, that's not guaranteed. It is incredibly traumatic truly, usually, for family. And then the body is whisked away. You can't bury or cremate. Um, You can't do last rites. The hospital has done its hospitaly things, and then it sort of says, well, we can't do any more. Your family member is dead. And by the way, they need to stay here a little bit longer because of this postmortem this autopsy. And that's such a lightning rod for families. I mean, imagine the the kind of the tragedy of, of a death and then compounding that tragedy, the fact that the very place that was supposed to, in one's view, avert death, A, can't, and then B, says it's going to hold the body longer. And you cannot go and see what is happening. You can't visit a body while it is undergoing a postmortem. This is a totally out-of-bounds place because it is a legal space. So that's what it is as a black box for families. But it's also a black box for the rest of the hospital, again, because of the medical legal dimensions. It's a very sort of exclusive place because what's being produced in a medical legal postmortem is state evidence. It's very important what is determined as the cause of death, because in the case of something like a car accident or a car crash, um, 
if this case goes to court, then the, the evidence that is produced from the autopsy can be mobilized as evidence in a legal case. So it's extremely important that that process be left to medical experts and not to any undue influence outside in order to sort of preserve what is thought to be that process's integrity. It's also a bottleneck because the severity and prevalence of trauma in urban India and in Mumbai specifically means there are a lot of deaths to investigate. And the morgue just cannot process the number. I mean, it can't. I mean, I should say it cannot. It can, but at a considerable strain on the human and material infrastructure of what is kind of given to investigate these cases. Um, you know, uh, pathology as a specialty of medicine is is not looked upon as a competitive or desirable branch of medicine that young aspirants to medicine want to pursue. Very few people go into medicine in India or elsewhere saying that they want to do pathology. And as a result, the doctors who are in this space feel um, black boxed in a way on their own in all kinds of complicated ways. They feel like their labor is utterly necessary to the processes of law, and yet they have sort of the worst resources in the hospital um, because of their a death space. Um, they feel like uh, they have kind of an undue burden uh, uh, kind of hoisted upon them, but also how do you stop the flow of bodies when it is something that is somewhat out of the control of the hospital in terms of how accidents happen that generate their caseloads? So it's a really, it's a really fascinating and troubling space to think through. And I was really challenged to try to think about how to narrate it. And for me, I particularly wanted to give the reader a sense of what goes on in the space without delving too deeply, a little bit, but not too deeply into the blood and guts of it. I wanted readers to begin to imagine or to appreciate what goes on in an autopsy. At the same time, I have read many accounts of autopsies, some which I think can be a little too graphic. Uh, not that I think that readers need to be spared or that it's my job to police what they do or don't get in terms of information, but there's also a really fine line to walk in terms of when does one spill over this moving, and again, it's not a, an either or, but what is the kind of moving boundary between appreciating how deeply distressing this is for everyone in the picture and the clinical details? And that was a narrative challenge. How do you narrate dissection without giving the step-by-step? -step? Yeah. 
Thank you. Those are, again, difficult um, provocations posed by you. Uh, and uh, I really appreciate the, uh, the openness with which you offer these provocations through the text, really. Um, there are so many other chapters that I would love to talk to you about, but for the sake of um, time, I guess, I would love for you to talk about the, the, la the one of the last chapters, which is um, on the complicated concept of moving on or recovering from trauma. Um, how does the traffic of trauma continue to shape people's lives and everyday movement even after the patient has been discharged? And what are the implications for the way we think about functionality, disability, closure, and justice uh, when we think about what goes on once some people have moved on or are recovering from trauma? Yeah, so this is a question about the last chapter, which is about what happens to people who exit the trauma ward alive and are discharged. And it's about discharge and recovery. And in some ways, this, this chapter really opened up the fieldwork for this chapter, where I was able to visit people in their homes, was what in some ways kind of opened up the arguments of the book to me in different ways. So the argument of the book being that, you know, we can think a lot about the trauma of traffic, how, you know, traffic can injure and is injurious and sends people to the hospital. But what would it mean to think about the traffic of trauma, which is to say how movement continues after the accident scene? And what happens when one leaves the hospital after having been in an accident is really illustrative of this. How do you carry trauma with you? On what terms? On whose terms? And it also brings into light kind of all of the previous chapters, which are about what is knowable and speakable within the hospital. But once you leave the hospital, what is knowable and speakable in the home? And it's not necessarily so clear. So I was really interested in thinking about questions of disability and recovery in this chapter. And the public health uh, researchers and physicians who I was working with were very interested in an ethnographic study of um, functionality and disability recovery. And so they were thinking about things like you know, um, there are these uh, scales in public health that one can use to estimate or kind of quantify um, things at the 30-day, six-month, one-year, five-year mark after a traumatic injury, things like, can you walk a certain number, of, you know, a certain distance? Can you use the bathroom on your own? Do you need assistive devices? What does everyday sort of care look like? Um, and they were interested in thinking about kind of the specificity of India in those metrics and why the specificity of Indian everyday life may or may not be captured by those metrics. And so they felt very strongly that kind of a home visit, like a qualitative interview inside a home might crack open some of those questions. Um, and so I worked with them on designing um, sort of a home visit ethnography that would be a supplement to the clinical ethnography for the book. And what I learned in that process was that even though people who had been injured and their family members, and I met with both, wanted to talk about, quote unquote, the event, or quote unquote, the injury, what people often wanted to talk about 
was the elusiveness of compensation, was the elusiveness of closure or a deep desire for closure, which is to say that for many people who are in this hospital ward are in this book. They're in this hospital ward and they're in my account of it because of a hit and run, because of something like falling out of a train that seems accidental, but sometimes people say that it was a crowd that pushed them or someone pushed them. So there are all of these forms of agency that never make an appearance in the hospital, but kind of are discussable again in a different light. It's not that they're not, it's not that they're silent in the hospital, but because medicine is doing medicine's thing in the hospital, there isn't often a kind of a language or vocabulary on offer to make, uh, to voice those concerns. Whereas once back in the home, again, it's not guaranteed, but questions of compensation, justice, and alternative timelines, I found to be voiced very often in the home visits that I did, which is to say that people really were quite frank and said, you know, um, I'm when when I asked very open-ended questions about what do you do your, during your day, or how do you, you know what is what is life like, and what is work like, or can you work, and what what does work look like, and what does care look like, and what does family life look like, and people would talk about you know preoccupations with thinking about, for example, the person whose truck hit their motorbike and um, sped off, and thing and would say things there was one young man who said something like i wish he had just stopped if he had just stopped and and offered 100 rupees that would have been enough um so thinking about what it would mean to encounter someone who is wrapped up in one's injury um in an alternative timeline and not necessarily imagine a quest for justice but imagine that possibility of encountering others in the story alongside all of the things that happened in the hospital. So moving on, often, at least in certain versions of trauma theory, are about kind of confronting the accident or confronting one's trauma so that one can kind of process it and make some sort of breakthrough or have some sort of realization. Um, And I think that there are plenty of scholars working in South Asia and elsewhere who have complicated that claim and said that people often carry trauma with them in all kinds of ways, that people are never or rarely afforded this space to process it. Um, This is intensely gendered in South Asia and elsewhere. Um, uh, the idea that, you know, certain spaces are, are offered for men to process that not for women. Um, I wanted to sort of sit with those questions of, of how an injury did and did not echo outside of the event space of the hospital. And so if thought in terms of movement, one could see the ways that the injury did and did not appear again. Um, when people talked about disability. And often it was framed, for me at least, as a problem of 
justice that could never be achieved, closure that could never be achieved. And for some people, um, that was a fact. And for others, it was a frustration. And for some, some both. I mean, I, I think about a person who got very deeply involved with a, with a court case that just continues to stretch on, trying to bring to justice or some version of it, the hit the person involved in the hit and run, which um, injured him severely. I think of another person whose brother was killed in a motorcycle accident and whose who is a young man and whose family members wanted to um, bring to court uh, the person who was blamed for the motorcycle accident, but the brother of the person who died was insistent that the person who caused it is himself a young man and didn't want to ruin his life. And so he is now sort of in all kinds of complicated tensions with the rest of his family members trying to prevent them from getting police involvement. So I thought that the kind of the question of what um, trauma looks like after it leaves the hospital as it enters into spaces of the home and of law, in this case, the courts, was something that was worth exploring. In other words, if I was really committed to a, 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 an analytic about movement, then um, I felt compelled to not let the story end at the border of the hospital, at the door of the hospital. If I was going to be so insistent as to trace the story as it moved into the hospital and through the hospital, I felt like I was on the hook to trace the story as it moved back into the city. And so the question for me is, is what is the hospital sending back out into the city? And that's sort of what I'm trying to think through in that chapter. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking time out to chat with me about your brilliant book today. Um, I realize I've taken up a lot of your time, but I cannot let you go without asking you what you're working on now and what we can hope to read by you in the near future. Well, thank you so much. This has been so fantastic, a chance to sort of have a conversation with you and readers. Um, so, I mean, I guess a couple of things I'm working on. Uh, one of them is that uh, since early 2020, I've been working on a collaborative ethnography of an intensive care unit um, in an American hospital. Um, I had the incredible opportunity to um, teach an intensive care physician, um, he taught me, uh, who was uh, enrolled in my medical anthropology class at Duke several years ago prior to the pandemic. And then when COVID began, he wrote me in and said, do you think we should be tracking this? And the answer was yes. And so we began with two other intensive care physicians. What we thought at the time was going to be sort of a rapid ethnography of the ICU that they worked in, but of wound up being a two-year study of clinical labor. Um, which I was really invested in because I had seen so many echoes of this in the trauma ward of what it would look like to trace the story of medicine from the perspective of nurses, for example. Um, so that project is sort of a story about 
clinical labor during the pandemic as a window onto the future of healthcare itself. And it's also a story about what medical anthropology and what ethnography can look like when um, the trained anthropologist can't go into the site of which is in question, but the three people who are the ones um, doing the medicine and now also doing the observations and interviews as well are in this space. So it's a it's a it's a book project now based on that 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 field work that's about on one hand clinical labor as kind of a bellwether of the future of healthcare in the U.S. Um, taking the ICU and the pandemic and all of the things that happened over the past two years and continue to face us um, as an exemplar, but also to think also about ethnography and what that kind of ethnography is and means in this moment, questions of access and mediation. Um, there's a second project that I've begun now that I can go back to India, which has been really wonderful, about kind of the aftermath of COVID. In a way, it's not a project about COVID, but it's a project about public health law and sort of thinking about the ways that law and public health are moving in and out of relationship in India right now. That last chapter in the in Lifelines about compensation and um, negligence and questions of malpractice, uh, those are sort of the seeds of that project. So kind of a new project of thinking about what the kind of borderlands between law and medicine in India today look like. Um, and then lastly, um, another project that's in its early stages, which is about nursing um, and thinking about um, nurses and nursing as um, a kind of a, a particular focus of medical anthropology, but also the way we understand health medicine and healthcare. Um, and what all of the kind of questions beginning with things like nursing shortages or the presumption of nursing shortages tell us about how we understand health and medicine and kind of questions of care and labor that are baked into those assumptions that I'm hoping to unpack. Mm -hmm. Wow, thank you. All of these projects sound really, really interesting, and I can't wait to read what comes out of them. Um, all the best with the projects, and um, thanks again for taking time out to chat about Lifelines. I also must add that I really, uh, really liked your uh, sketches that um, are the, the sketch on the cover is by you, right? The cover art? It's a tracing of a photo. So all yeah, so there's a there's all of the all of the pictures in the book are tracings of photos, some which I took and some which others took. And so um, there are things in the final picture which are and are not in the original photos. Um, 
this was sort of a challenge about thinking about what would an illustration look like, you know, and not to kind of bear down heavily with photography and also the limitations on photography. Um, and so um, I write a little bit in the, there's a kind of a headliner note about um, a note on the illustrations about tracing as an ethnographic motif and kind of how it, um, it gets actually to the, the heart of the book, which is about lines and thinking about kind of movement of lines and tracing as one of those practices in art where um, you have to make very critical decisions about where your pen does and does not start and stop um, and what it does and does not follow and in what patterns. Um, so that's what happens on the cover and in the books. And for readers, um, the book itself has black and white um, uh, illustrations, but the book um, is now available open access, I should say. Um, and hopefully we can find a way to link to that on the page. And the open access version of the text has everything in color. Excellent. Well, yeah, that's a, that's a great note to end this on. Thanks, Iris, and take care, and uh, we'll stay in touch, right? Sounds wonderful. Thank you so much, Sneha. It's been fantastic.